Would you pray together with me? And gracious Heavenly Father, as we gather together in this place, we realize that, that we are just a tiny outpost of a tremendous kingdom. One that overarches all of time and space. One, Lord, presided over by the King Eternal. And that, Lord, you invest of yourself into us a dignity in this moment that allows us to be able to hear your word and take it to heart, realizing that, Lord, we are as citizens of that kingdom, that we are gathered together in this, your home. So, Lord, with that sense of of joy and with that sense of belonging, Lord, we come to you. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I take it the flu season has hit in full force. Uh, How many of you have suffered with the flu? How many of you will be suffering with the flu? (laughs) That's why whenever it comes to the time, you know, for greeting, I've I've resorted now to doing fist bumps. It's a lot safer, you know, (laughs) and it's more manly too. Uh, I don't know how safe it is. I, I was playing golf with a number of my friends, and one of them hit a beautiful drive, and as I walked up to the tee, and he was walking away, he had picked up his tee, he actually had his tee sticking through his finger, and you know how sharp that is, and I went to fist bump him, and, and, and I had a scar for about three or four uh, weeks there from the, from, the, from the experience. Just thought I'd share that with you. I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 6 as we continue our journey through the Lord's Prayer. And during this season of 60 days of prayer at Ebenezer, you could probably consider going through this particular prayer, the Lord's Prayer, one phrase at a time, to be basic training, tuning us to know how to be able to pray. As Luke records this prayer in the Gospel, Jesus gave this prayer actually in response to the disciples' very simple request. They had come to him, they had said, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, you would think that prayer is, is, is really just a natural act, uh, and in ways it is. But for it to have any substance, uh, for it to have any meaning, we ha- have a few critical lessons to learn, and so it is important to pay attention to our Lord Jesus, especially here in Ma- Matthew chapter 6, as he, as he begins his lessons in verse 9, when he says, pray then this way. He's giving lessons, he's giving an outline for how we shall pray. Now last week I pointed out that there is a clear outline to this particular prayer, a pattern to the way in which it unfolds. It begins with three specific prayer requests or petitions, as I put them. Each of them are focused on God. That's where our prayer begins, it focuses on God, with three petitions that his name be hallowed, that his kingdom come, and that his will be done. Now these are, as I said last week, not just simple statements of fact or assertions uh, about God, that his name is holy or that his kingdom is coming or that even that his will is unstoppable. Those are assertions. Now each of these things may be true, they are assertions, but the way Jesus composes them in this prayer, these become petitions. That, 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 that are requests that we are making that energize us to make his name holy, to make way for the coming of his kingdom, and to submit our will so that his will be done. 
And it's only really then whenever those first three petitions were put on the table, then that we then refocus to our own personal needs for, for bread, for forgiveness, or for guidance. They, they find their place at that point. The way Jesus teaches us to pray reveals his divine strategy of, of priority and of purpose. And I have to think that that divine strategy is nowhere more clear than the step that we take this morning from the first petition that we looked at last week into the second petition that is in front of us this morning. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That was the first petition. Thy kingdom come. That's the second. When God's name is hallowed, when we hallow the name of God, the door is open. We open the door uh, to embrace certain realities that make all the difference in our life. They're kingdom realities. It may, be, uh, it may appear to be fairly simple, just a three-word prayer request, thy kingdom come, but in reality, it is really so, so much more. First, it is an affirmation of what happens when we hollow the name of God. What happens when we hollow the name of God is that we confirm his authority as God being our sovereign Lord, our King, that we have a King. You can't really conceive of a kingdom without having a king, and you can't define the nature of a kingdom without recognizing both the attributes and the authority of that king. I love the way A.W. Tozer has put it in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, where he writes these words. I, I love these words. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is really the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above their religion and that man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. We tend by a secret law of the soul, he writes, to move then toward our mental image of God. Without a doubt, the mightiest thought that the mind can ever entertain is the thought of God. And a right conception of God is basic not only to systematic theology, but to practical Christian living as well. I love that. What comes into our minds when we think about God is really the most important thing about us. Do you realize that? No wonder that the first and foremost petition Jesus gives us to pray is that we would hollow the name of God, that we would make it holy and all that it is. And since we then tend by that secret law of the soul to move toward that mighty thought of the God who is in truth and power, it is no wonder that what we think is translated then into action and in obedience. As he says, the right concept of God being the matter of basic belief, but also a matter of life. Not of systematic theology, but also practical uh, Christian living. Living the lifestyle that is designed by the king, and when we do that, his kingdom comes. It's no mistake that in the Old Testament we find the constant reminder being repeated again and again and again to affirm and to reaffirm the clarity of this vision that we are to hold in Psalm chapter 24, uh, Ch- Psalm 24, verse 1, we read that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. He founded it. He established it upon the waters. Are we clear on those facts? Then in verse 8, we read in Psalm 24, 
these questions. Who is the king of glory? And again in verse 10, who is he, this king of glory? Who is your king? Who's your daddy? Who's your king? Who's your king? Who defines the mightiest and the highest and the most glorious thought you can imagine? Who is your king of glory? Psalm 24, the Lord. Strong and mighty, the Lord God Almighty, he is the king of glory. And if he is the king, then let his kingdom come. With our prayer, we not only affirm his authority and our obedience to it, but we also confirm the certainty that his kingdom actually comes. Even as this phrase looks to the past and sees God as the king with a kingdom that spans the entire universe, saying, thy kingdom come also causes us to look into the future and, and see and, and sees a whole new manifestation of his kingdom. The very nature of the verb come in the Greek refers to a decisive time in the future when the kingdom comes once and for all. It is the second advent of Jesus Christ when he will return, judge the world, and set up his eternal kingdom. Men and women have longed for this moment ever since the fall. You have and so have I. In fact, we read in Romans chapter 8, we're not the only ones who yearn for it. All of creation has yearned for it, groaning in anticipation for the kingdom to come. And every time we pray, thy kingdom come, we echo the vision that has sustained God's people throughout the ages, even in the darkest hours, providing an aspiration that has kept hope alive. The kingdom is coming. I think I mentioned some time ago that over the last few years I've been reading everything that I can of the works of two German pastors, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Helmut Tillicke. Both of them were pastors of the believing church during the darkest days of the Third Reich. Reflecting on the coming kingdom, Dr. Tillicke described the conditions that many of us can appreciate and maybe can appreciate even in Ebenezer as we encounter the 60 days of prayer. When I became a pastor, Helmut Tillicke writes, and conducted my very first Bible study hour, I went into it with a determination to trust in the Word of God. My first passage was Jesus saying, all authority has been given unto me. All, uh, uh, all power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. And I said these words to myself in order to assure myself that even though Hitler who was then in the saddle, and his dreadful power machine were merely puppets hanging by the strings in the hand of the mighty Lord. But in that very first Bible study hour, I was faced by a total congregation of two very old ladies and one still older organist. He was a very worthy man, but his fingers were so palsied, and this was embarrassingly apparent in his playing And so this was the extent of the accomplishment of this Lord to whom all authority has been given, to whom power in heaven and earth has been given, supposedly given. And outside marched the battalions of youth who were subject to an altogether different Lord. This was all that that, that he had set before me on that evening. What did he have to offer anyway? And if it was really nothing more than this, then isn't he refuted by his utterly miserable response? Something like this was and has been the mood of the disciples. And maybe the 
the reason that Jesus gave them this petition. Thy kingdom comes. Thy kingdom come. And here the question arises, did Jesus mean by this that Christianity would conquer the whole world, Tillica writes? Quite definitely he did not. When Jesus speaks of the coming of the kingdom, he is not thinking so much of a quantitative process by which his church grows even larger and finally in a mighty Christian invasion conquers the continents and the islands, but rather in the fact that in his church there is an inwelling dynamic which must lay hold of everything around it, a dynamic of certainty and a dynamic of hope. (laughs) This morning we read of that moment as it is described in the book of Revelation, when the full weight of the prayers of all God's people are finally fulfilled. When the kingdom comes and the king arrives and on his robe and on his thigh are written these words, King of kings and Lord of lords, that day is coming and so we pray, thy kingdom come. Again, I I just love the perspective brought by Helmut Tillicke, when, and as he looked at this prayer and he wrote, he said, a man's biography should, should begin not with his birth but with his death, for a man's life is revealed only by its end, by its gold. In, in exactly the same way, it can be said that the secret of history is revealed only as we see its end. And then listen very carefully to this. Actually, this is the way the scriptures look at the history of the world. Even though the first pages of the Bible start out with the very beginning of creation, they already include the end and the goal. For the intent of these pages is not to disclose where man came from, but where we are going to. The purpose, the purpose of the whole scriptures is to outline the plan that God has for us and all the world. Therefore, I've always taken this one to heart, therefore the real book of the secret of history To be understood and read by God's people is not Genesis, but the revelation of John. If you're going to know any Bible book and and be immersed with this vision, it is the revelation of John. There, the course of history of the world is revealed as seen from its end. And there it ends in the songs of angels and the redeemed. There, the kingdom has come in all of its fullness and immensity. Already we are living in the name and the promise of that. And the lights of that far harbor are shining in the distance. And dare not think that God's little ship will ever go down before it arrives at that destination. And while the angels are singing their praises, because the kingdom of God is in motion, it comes to us with power, to us who dwell beneath the angels' praise. Therefore, look up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Let us pray, thy kingdom come. I just love that. Especially the idea that the very first book of the Bible that should become the focus of our heart is the book of Revelation. Why? Because that is where all of the rest of the books are heading. <laughs> Let me make a personal confession. I hate suspense. I, I, I simply can't handle it well. My, my wife and my kids will all agree that if we're watching a scary movie, I, I, I have to leave the room. I'm so thankful that I can have my computer in front of me when I'm watching shows where the music begins and I, 
I can quickly Google up the movie to find out how it's ending so I can actually stay in the room. You know, I, I, I can't handle suspense not knowing the outcome. Not so with our faith. Some may make the mistake of reading the Bible, beginning in the book of Genesis and moving forward in time and then living life on the same vector, wondering, is it going to work out? Is it going to work out? Is it going to ever work out? God himself has turned it all around. His kingdom is certain and his future is his. And so we pray, thy kingdom come. Now, Quite honestly, I don't know what you may be carrying into your heart during these 60 days of prayer. There may be a little bit of desperation. You may, like Helmetilica, come to prayer with a sense of fear and hopelessness and despair, especially with a background of darkness around you. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if, if there wouldn't come a bit of suspense into your voice when you pray. But when you pray... Take this to heart. His kingdom is coming. Thy kingdom come. So each time that we pray the Lord's Prayer, we affirm the authority and confirm His certainty. One more thing, we also discover our dignity. The dignity that comes from being a citizen of His kingdom. It it may come as a surprise over that over the years there has been a conflict in understanding this particular passage and the meaning of the kingdom coming. Some argue that it is a prayer for the second coming of Christ and that's all it is, and that it has nothing to do with present life. But that is wrong. For Jesus, the kingdom was both future and present. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, his message began this way, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It is present. In Luke chapter 17, verse 21, his message was that the kingdom of God is in your midst. It is at hand. It is present. The passion of Jesus Christ was for the kingdom, and it was a major theme of his preaching. The word kingdom actually occurs 49 times in Matthew, 16 times in Mark, 38 times uh, in Luke, a total of 103 times in just those three Gospels. It was his overwhelming, consuming passion, which begs the question, how did he bring the kingdom into the present? And what did that mean for his disciples, especially when he taught them and us to pray now that the kingdom would come? Well, the answer uh, it becomes a very personal thing. Because the kingdom of God is made a reality in the present through the citizens of that kingdom, men and women just like you and me who through Jesus Christ have been brought into obedience and conformity to the Father's world, will we are the first steps of that kingdom. And let me suggest that such a commitment produces a life that does in fact make a difference. First, in the way in which we relate to one another. And second, in the way in which we live out each moment of our lives. There's a wonderful verse, and, and, and thank you, George, for reading at the very beginning, that connects those two thoughts. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, there we read these words, So then, therefore, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are of God's household. Just a couple of notes there. 
First, this is a present reality. Notice the verbs that are used in that particular verse. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. The verbs that are used there are, you are, you are, you are. It almost sounds like he's a pirate. Arr, 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 you know. Uh, something has happened to you that makes you what you are right now. And because it's you, plural, it's happened to you and you and you and you and you and me as well. So we are. This is present. Second, notice that what has made this now our present reality. The first two words of that particular verse, Ephesians 2, verse 19. You may have it translated as so then in the New International Version. It's really just one word. Consequently, something has happened that has produced this consequence of reality, this present reality. And all you have to do is then go back just one verse to get the answer in verse 18. For through him, we read, Jesus Christ, we have access to the Father by one Spirit. Because of Jesus Christ, we are now capable of looking at each other and seeing fellow citizens with all the saints. Citizens of what? Citizens of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God isn't just something out there in the future. It is something right here. And it's something that I see among the pews at Ebenezer. It's in our present. And when we pray, thy kingdom come, we affirm that we are united together with all of God's saints, all of God's children, and each of us with equal standing and full rights because we are citizens, full citizens of this heavenly kingdom. What a thought. And what a delightful picture this paints, really. I look at Ebenezer and I see a sight similar to what I saw when I was a pastor at Bethany. I don't know what the number is here at Ebenezer, but before I left Bethany as pastor, I had by my count 17 languages being spoken in our congregation. An indication that on an earthly standard, we, we had every reason to look at each other as strangers and aliens, every single one of us to the other. And on the surface, there was plenty of reason to be strange and alien with each other. But for Jesus Christ, except for Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, consequently, we were no longer strangers and aliens, but by rights, we were full citizens together in a heavenly kingdom. Some of you know that in the early 1970s, I worked as a missionary in Eastern Europe, carrying Bibles across the Iron Curtain. I love the story that was told by one of my fellow workers who, with a team of two others, an Italian and an Englishman, were traveling into Romania on a train. <laughs> they were stopped. The train was stopped at the border, and guards boarded the train and began to check out the papers on each of the passengers. And things got real tense in their compartment, especially when one of the guards who came in to check the papers found a Bible. <laughs> And then called out to the rest of the guards who all came to the compartment. And pretty soon a commanding officer came. And and, and he reached out and he took the Bible and he began to turn to the pages until he came to a stop. And then he looked at all three. And he looked at them and he said, You know Italian. You know Englishman. You know American. And then he, he, he turned the Bible over to them and he pointed to a verse in the page and he said, Read this. In Philippians chapter 32, that, uh, 3, verse 20, that's what he pointed to. And it read, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and in hearing those words read, the officer then smiled and he said, And I know Romanian. <laughs> 
And he turned to the rest of the guards and he said, let these people alone, they are with me. Ebenezer, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens and saints. And therefore, it is my prayer that the result of this season of prayer would unite you in a way that has never been before. You know Canadians. (laughs) You citizens of a heavenly kingdom and members together of an altogether different society. And not just your relationship with one another. That does not only affect that. It also affects the impact that you have that comes into each and every moment of your life. When you pray, thy kingdom come, you affirm that you are fellow citizens and that each and every one of you have a place, not only within the kingdom, but also a place of service in God's household, as that verse reads. It's not just a kingdom of political reality. It is a home and a household. Who knew that a simple three-word prayer would mean so much? I I love the way N.T. Wright put it together. He said, Jesus spoke and acted, knowing that evil's long reign would finally be defeated through his own work, so that what does it mean when we pray thy kingdom come? It means that the end is secure and we are able to move forward with confidence, that we are no longer captive to, to our own identities, and, mark this, and that even the simplest acts when done in obedience to our king, have kingdom significance. Even our simplest acts. When I read Ephesians 2, I realize that this kingdom is more than just an eternal domain. It is a home, a household, where life is lived in the simplest ways. And if the promise of the eternal dominion rests in the future, the reality of the household is alive right now and right here as you and I are living lives of kingdom service with one another and in our world. You may may think that you are just teaching a Sunday school class or you may think that you are just leading in worship. You may think that you are just caring for one another and bringing a plate to the casserole. You may think that you are just serving in a thousand small and seemingly insignificant ways. No, 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 no. With each simple act of service, each single act of obedience to our Heavenly Father, the head of our household, you're making the kingdom come. Even the simplest acts, right, says, when done in obedience to our King, has kingdom significance. And even the simplest prayer, when given from the heart, prepares the way for his kingdom to come. And so we pray it from the heart. We'll do it together. It is in your worship folder. It is on your sermon notes. It is up on the screen. And hopefully it's also within your memory as well. But as we come to the end of this message, would you pray this together with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, even as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.